According to South Korea's most recent census, taken in 2015, 56.1% of the country's population is non-religious or atheistic in nature. While this is a fairly large figure, it's not to say that religion is non-existent or doesn't play a part in the everyday lives of some South Koreans. On the contrary, the next figure, 27.6%, is largely confined to urban areas, where much of the population identifies as Christian, with the breakdown being 19.7% Protestant and 7.9% Catholic. Next is Buddhism, with 15.5%, a faith largely practiced in the rural parts of the country. That leaves a mere 0.8% in the dubious category of other, including practitioners of Korea's own native faith, a form of shamanism that, while its numbers have dwindled in recent centuries thanks to the introduction of foreign religions, has somehow still held on and remains an integral part of Korean culture and the national identity. What exactly is Korean shamanism? What are some of its customs and practices? And just how long has it been in existence? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and Hwan Yong Hada, or welcome to this edition of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. As of 2020, Christianity is the world's largest religion, with some 2.382 billion adherents that make up 31% of the Earth's total population. With such astonishing figures as these, it's not surprising that the monotheistic faith has found its way to the Korean Peninsula, which it did in the late 18th century, when it, just like Buddhism before it, was introduced by the Chinese. It's this faith that makes up the majority of religious people in South Korea, especially in the urban areas of Seoul and Busan. But what religion did the Koreans practice before Christianity, or even Buddhism? were adopted by their society. For that we must search the annals of Korea's prehistory, long before the carpenter's son who would be Christ, or the Hindu prince who would one day be called Buddha walked the earth. The earliest evidence of human presence attested to in the Korean peninsula dates back to about 8000 BC, in a period now known as the Jail Moon Pottery Period, so named for the decorated clay vessels made during the time. According to archaeologists and historians, it was an era of hunting, gathering, and small-scale cultivation of plants. It was out of the obscurity of this ancient time that Korean shamanism was born in around 1000 BC, or slightly earlier. Initially, the religion and its traditions were passed down orally, namely through illiterate, low-ranking women of the then highly stratified Korean society. But as time wore on, men became involved as well, as did other people from both low and high ranks. The development and distribution of this faith can best be categorized into varying groups. Historically, Korea is a country that has been influenced and controlled by several different faiths and East Asian powers, respectively. As such, countless influences have shaped the faith, and in turn, the religion has borrowed elements from these disparate influences and incorporated them into its own doctrine. Initially, Korean shamanism remained distinct, but then syncretism, the practice of fusing disparate religious ideas and practices together, took hold when elements of Korean shamanism began influencing Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, and much later Christianity, all four of which were brought to the peninsula by outside, namely Chinese, sources. On the opposite side of the spectrum, these four foreign faiths had varying degrees of influence on Korea's indigenous religion. Throughout the centuries, to keep the faith relevant to its adherents as well as the Korean people, it mixed the beliefs of these more dominant doctrines into its own. But it was the introduction of Christianity to the Korean peninsula in the 18th century that nearly wiped Korean shamanism out for good. As this new religion took hold in the peninsula, an aversion to the indigenous faith grew. It was deemed evil, satanic, and its practices were highly suppressed. Acupuncture, for example, a medical as well as spiritual ritual, was considered absurd and was later banned. 
the Korean pantheon was also brought into question and was called dangerous and detrimental. The Japanese occupation that seized control of the country in 1910 after years of intimidation and political interference did little to help matters. Such traditions were considered naive, primitive, and inferior by the Japanese overlords and were continued to be outlawed. It wasn't until after the Korean conflict of 1950 to 1953 that a renewed sense of national pride restored this native religion from obscurity and brought it back to the forefront of the Korean consciousness and identity. Korean shamanism has gone by many names since its origins in prehistory. One of these is Muism, from the Korean word Mu, or shaman, and it's this term to which I'll refer to the religion from here on out. Another is Pungwol Do, or Way of Brightness, a term first coined by the late 9th and early 10th century Korean Confucian scholar Choe Chiwon. Yet another is Goshin Do, the Way of the Ancestral Gods, but in contemporary times, it's often referred to as Mushin Do, the shamanic way of the spirits. The word Mu is attributed to the Chinese word Wu, and in turn the Mongolian Bo and the Tibetan Bon. Mu can be applied to shamans of both sexes, though to differentiate the two even further, Mu Dang is often used for female shamans, while Sana Mu Dang, literally male Mu Dang, or Baksu, doctor or healer, is used for male ones. The terms differ depending upon region. Like most faiths whose origins can be traced to ancient times, Muism revolves around the worship of many gods, or polytheism. It also emphasizes the importance of nature as well as the guidance of one's ancestors, both of which are honored in equal measure to the gods. The earliest temples were dedicated to these deities and spirits and were oftentimes built atop mountains. Shrines dedicated to one's ancestors could also sometimes be found in the home, where they were often consulted in all manner of familial affairs. The aforementioned shamans led religious ceremonies and were seen as intermediaries between gods and humans. While comparisons have been drawn between the similar-sounding Wuism, which is China's own indigenous faith that also revolves around many gods and ancestor worship, it's more likely that the origins of Muism can be traced to the ancient animistic and shamanistic faiths of Siberia. This is attested to in the various Korean names for shamans, namely Mudang and Baksu, which historians and linguists think bear striking similarities to the Siberian Utagan and Utakan, or Baksi, Balsi, and Baksi respectively. According to Muist doctrine, there are four types of Mu whose purposes vary depending upon how they're initiated and what roles they perform. While it's indeed true that the Mu act as intermediaries between gods and humans as previously stated, each is responsible for different religious observances, and therefore different practices. The first of these are the Mu Dang, who can primarily be found in the Gyeonggi, Hamgyong, Huanghe and Pyongan provinces of South Korea's northern edge. Through a process known as Simbyong, an illness caused by a deity entering a prospective Mu's body in a type of benign ritual possession, they are initiated, which in turn serves as a cure for the ailment. The god's soul, however, never leaves the body. Instead, the Mu shares their being with the deity, known as a Momju, lord of the body. And in the shamanic rituals, the Mu enters a type of trance in which they speak with the voice of the god being invoked. Next are the Dangul, who act more like priests than shamans. They're found primarily in the Chungcheong, Gangwon, Gyeongsang, and Jeolla provinces of the southern and eastern parts of the country. Unlike the Mudang, their titles are passed down through familial lineage and not through supernatural initiation. In fact, they boast no supernatural powers to speak of like their northern counterparts, and are not tied to any one deity. Instead, they honor multiple gods, particularly those of their community, in a fixed set of rituals. The Simbang of South Korea's largest island Jeju, on the other hand, combine elements of both the Mudang and Dangul types in that they're associated with specific deities, but are not possessed by them. Instead, they invoke them through the incorporation of three ritualistic objects known as Mengdu. These sacred items are fashioned out of brass and are comprised of divination rods, a pair of knives, and a bell, and can even be used to communicate with the spirits of deceased Mu. The Simbang's tasked with deciphering the divine messages conveyed through the Mengdu. 
Finally, the most mysterious of all these shamanistic sects are the Myeongdu, whose responsibilities fall in line with those of the Dangol, in that they don't participate in rituals, but are believed to be possessed by the spirits of deceased children. They can also, unlike other groups, foretell the future. Now that we've discussed the different types of Mu, let's focus on how a person actually becomes one. Sure, they can be possessed by a deity, or inherit the title from a relative, but how is it that they decide they want to don the mantle? Mu's tradition dictates that a person is chosen by the gods through a spiritual experience known as a Shinbyong, literally divine illness. Much like the ailment that afflicts the Mu Dang prior to and during their initiation, it's a sort of religious ecstasy which involves a loss of self while being possessed by a god or spirit. This trance-like state is often accompanied by symptoms of physical pain and psychosis, as well as loss of appetite, a period of insomnia, and even auditory or visual hallucinations. Adherents to the faith believe that such an ailment can't be cured with medicine or medical treatment, but only when the afflicted one accepts the newly formed symbiotic relationship with the holy entity that has sought shelter within them. The possessed one then undergoes a ritual known as Nairim Gut, in which the sickness is healed while simultaneously establishing the afflicted as a Mu. Some Mu undergo Shimyong, divine light, in which they channel a deity and speak prophetically, though they're not the only ones who can experience it. Whole communities have reported doing so as well during the ritual, leaving them feeling revitalized and rejuvenated with a newfound sense of energy. Physical and mental anguish disappear, and societal pressure is dispelled. Several rituals and practices define Muism, but perhaps the most important of them all is the Gut, a series of rites performed by a shaman. They're meant to strengthen the bond between gods and humans as well as promote welfare for a given community or group of people. First, however, the space in which the Gut is to take place is purified, as purification of both mind and body is crucial for anyone taking part in rituals. This enhances the link between living people and the ancestors. The altar is purified with both fire and water, and white paper, the color of which is traditionally associated with purity, is burned. The ceremony begins with offerings to the gods. These can include food or even sacrifices. The rites performed are characterized by chants, songs, prayers, rhythmic movements, and even oracular predictions. Song and dance are integral parts of the ritual, and are used to ask the gods to intervene in human affairs. The Mu wears many costumes throughout the ritual, which can sometimes last for days on end, the colors of which are bright and vibrant, and speaks ecstatically through the deities. By the ceremony's end, those involved feel a sense of blessing and gratitude, knowing that their fortunes have been touched and even altered by the gods. As you can see, Muism is certainly one of the world's more interesting and multifaceted faiths. It's also one of the few that has endured from its beginnings in prehistory to the present, making it a survivor in the truest sense of the word. Today, Koreans in increasing numbers are rediscovering this indigenous religion and are realizing its important connection to their national and cultural identity. Indeed, it has endured quite a bit, both the positive and negative, but will undoubtedly continue to endure so long as its adherents and the gods have their way. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you joining me for yet another enlightening episode. I can scarcely believe that it's already the middle of April, but I'd like to wish my listeners the very happiest of Passovers and Easters this weekend. May these holidays be blessed ones for you and your families. If you enjoy my content and would like to support me to ensure more of it, please consider supporting me monthly. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget or monetary situation. Times are hard, but anything you can do, even listening and sharing, is greatly appreciated. Join me again next week as we embark on another journey to the past, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Jester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Music